Okay, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, is where we've got to. And this uh, study through this uh, really just incredible book, uh, there's so much here to encourage us and to challenge us. Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts, shall we just pray as we turn to God's word together. Father, we do thank you for the blessings that you have showered upon us, Lord, the privilege we have of being able to meet together in freedom, to be able to pray, to bring our prayers and requests before you, and Lord, also to be able to study your word together. Lord, we thank you for this incredible book that you've given. We thank you for every page, Lord, for every word, every letter on every page. Lord, we recognize that your word is living and powerful. Oh, Lord, it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. Lord, we pray this morning that in our own lives, as we look at these things, you would do just that. Help us to see, Lord, areas in our life that you want to work on, that need to be transformed and changed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Lord, we pray that we'd be encouraged as well in our walk with you. Uh, Stir our hearts, Lord. Give us a greater love for Jesus as we study the written word. Lord, give us a love for the living word himself. Uh, So we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to do what we've done for the last few weeks, Um, just read the uh, paraphrase effectively from this uh, uh, Jewish New Testament. Uh, It's just another translation, Uh, as I said, uh, not everything, Uh, I I completely agree with the way they translated it, but most things are really helpful. Um, So following your Bibles, and you're going to get the gist of what we're going through. Um, So let's just look at chapter 5 of Hebrews. Um, So for the first verse, for every... High priest, uh, again, that Kohen Gadal is the the Hebrew, uh, taken from among men, is appointed to act on people's behalf with regard to things concerning God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and with those who go astray, since he too is subject to weakness. Also, because of this weakness, he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as those of the people. And no one takes this honour upon himself. Rather, he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So neither did the Messiah glorify himself to become a high priest. Rather, it was the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. Also, in another place he says, You are a high priest to be compared with Melchizedek. During Yeshua's life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions, crying aloud and shedding tears to the one who had the power to deliver him from death. And he was heard because of his godliness. Even though he was the son, he learned obedience through the sufferings. And after he'd been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obey him. Since he'd been proclaimed by God as the High priest to be compared with Melchizedek. We have much to say about the subject, but it is hard to explain because you've become sluggish in understanding. For although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the very first principles of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby without experience and implying the word without righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good 
from evil. So that's our, our text. Let's uh, go through them and look at these things together. The first thing here is it says, for every high priest. You know, in most religions there is this system where there is somebody who stands in that place between God and between man. Uh, someone who acts as that intercessor, in a sense. And, and most most religions, most cults have it. And there's almost a kind of a fear, I think, sometimes, of people being able to go directly to God. Now, there is kind of a biblical context of that. You go back to Exodus. We think of the time the children of Israel were at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, they left Egypt. They see all the miracles that God had done for them. And they get to Mount Sinai and God just comes down on top of the mountain with a fire and with thunder and lightnings and all these kind of things going on. And they're worried. And they say, look, don't let God speak to us directly. You know, we'll listen to you, Moses, but, but you know, we're a little bit scared because God's really quite big, isn't he? And, you know, and they start to get this sense of this aura of God. And so Moses acts in that sense, in that kind of role as intercession. Of course, as a result of that and the law being given, God establishes the priesthood for Israel. But, you know, even before that, that role was something that we see in Scripture. You know, typically the the father of the house, the head of the house, would act as that high priest for his family. We see at the beginning of the book of Job that Job sacrificed daily for his children. He went and brought offerings to God. He acted in that role, taking that responsibility for his own children before God. And as we read in Job, lest any of them had sinned. Because, of course, Job didn't know what they thought in their hearts. He didn't know the, the things that happened when they were out of his own uh, sight, out of his presence. So, you know, that there was that relationship that he wanted to be able to maintain on their behalf with God so that they would continue, continue to receive God's blessing. We see the same idea with Abraham, of course, and Jacob. You know, they, they act in this role as, as that... Um, one who represents God to their families and represents their families to God. And that's the typical role of a, of a high priest in a sense. Again, when we get to the law, it's, it's kind of codified and Aaron becomes the first high priest. Uh, and it becomes this, this lineage uh, that then is passed down. It's the, the Levites that are chosen out of the whole of the, the nation. Uh, and then uh, from within the Levites, there's this particular group that are chosen to act and to serve as priests on behalf of the nation. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, the dangers, the downfalls that came along with that. But nevertheless, this idea uh, of somebody interceding uh, for us on, on our behalf before God. Um, now, But it's interesting that there's what's said here, because it says, For every high priest taken, the Hebrew word is the same word that we're going to see again in verse 4, uh, where it speaks about nobody takes this honor for themselves. In other words, it's not something you just choose to do. We'll see this is something that you are called to do which kind of opens up lots of questions about many in the world today who um, you know, seem to think that, that entering into the ministry is just, just a, a job. I've got a, a card that somebody gave me once, and I've, um, it was one of those kind of humorous kind of birthday cards. And I just had a picture of a chap uh, on, the, on the, the, the drawing on the front who had just come back home, um, was speaking to his wife, uh, and he was wearing some of the bishop's robe and a mitre. And, uh, and the caption at the bottom just said, um, today Fred got lucky down at the job center. You know, and it's the implication that he just kind of stumbled across his great job and now he's going to be a bishop. And he's, you know, sadly for many people who enter into ministry, that's kind of their mindset. It's a job. It's a good thing to do. They see it as a way of earning a living. Uh, I, I remember 
somebody years ago, uh, I won't give too many specifics in case anybody listens to this recording and they, they know the individual and I don't want to uh, say anything I shouldn't, but it, it, it was basically, they, they decided to enter ministry, it was a job. And I remember speaking to them, they'd been to a Bible college in London, and I was chatting to them a little bit later, and they were talking about all the things they'd learned, and all the liturgy, and all these kind of things, and God did, just didn't feature. You know, they'd learned how to do the mechanics of this role, but somehow God wasn't in the equation. And we're going to see here, this, this uh, uh, section is just reminding us that this role is a very important role. And, you know, it's a role that it should be, in a sense, taken up by every husband, every father, uh, within your own families, that we should act as, in a sense, prophet, priest, and king in our own families. You know, as a prophet, in a sense, that you are declaring the word of God to your family. As a priest, in the fact that you're interceding on behalf of your family. And then king, as the fact that you're, you're taking that role and that responsibility to provide godly leadership and wisdom for your family. So those, those aspects apply as well to us, uh, particularly as Christian husbands and fathers. This word, though, taken, looking in the, uh, the concordance, I like it, it says, it just says, to lay hold or to take any personal thing in order to use it. Let me read that again. It's to, to lay hold or to take any personal thing in order to use it. And that's exactly what God does when he calls people into ministry. And particularly in this context in the Old Testament, uh, the priests and so that were taken, God took them as vessels to use them. It's in the context right here, because it's not that they had some particular skill set or ability that God said, you could be really useful to me. No, no, this is God saying, I want to use you for my purposes. And we just become vessels that God would use in that way. So it says, for every high priest that is taken from among men, it says, is ordained not by men. Notice that. It says, ordained for men. And that's the other thing to mention, that the role of a, a minister, a priest, a pastor, vicar, whatever denomination, whatever title you want to put on these things, the, the idea is that you are a servant. It's exactly what Jesus said. You know, those that want to be the greatest should serve the most. And the role uh, of a minister is literally to serve, to minister to other people. It's not to, to receive something. And, uh, there's a number of really good books that I've got at home and I've read about um, being a pastor and the role of a pastor and everything else. And it, and it says, you know, the, the books, they all kind of say the same type of thing, that you know, a congregation are not there to serve the pastor. The pastor's there to serve the congregation. You know, and that's the way that this ministry role should be. Uh, and the high priest for Israel, their job, they've been taken by God to be used. They've been ordained for men. They've been ordained to serve on behalf of people, to act as servants. Uh, but specifically in things pertaining to God. And that's the important part. It, it's not just about fulfilling a set of rituals or traditions or anything like that. It's about things that actually pertain to God. Again, any minister, any priest, any whatever type you want to put on that, their, their role should be to draw people toward God, to encourage people to live a godly lifestyle. They're ordained for men in things pertaining to God. And it says that he may both offer gifts... So they're acting on, they're taking gifts from people, they're offering them to the Lord, and sacrifices for sins. So it's speaking of, of worship, that in a sense we should be able to facilitate, and a high priest and a priest in this context, certainly in Israel, part of their role was to accept gifts that people would bring, and to offer them before the Lord. And to, to again just act as that kind of intercessor in a sense. And the idea of sacrifices as well. 
And we'll see this expounded in just a moment. But they would take the, the offerings that people brought to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Of course, eventually we get to the temple uh, in Solomon's time. But the idea was that the sacrifices would be brought by the people, and then the high priest would be the one who would go in uh, and offer these sacrifices to the Lord, or the priest particularly. But the high priest, again, had that responsibility at least once a year um, to offer this, this lamb on the, on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the nation. Um, so again, this, this thing, and God allows this to take, take place. Initially, Israel had chosen there to be a kingdom of, of priests in themselves. All of them were to be serving the Lord in that way. We get to that situation with the golden calf and Aaron and his family, the Levites particularly, stand up with Moses. There's that great kind of quote, who is on the Lord's side, uh, that we get in Exodus. And of course, the, the Levites join Moses, uh, and they deal with this problem, uh, that had arisen. And as a result of that, God says, okay, uh, rather than taking your firstborn as such to serve me, then I will take the Levites. They will be the ones who will minister before me. So again, that role of either the father or the firstborn in the family had that role of intercession. But then the Levites typically take on that responsibility and the priests that God calls. But then it says... And that not only are we acting in this role uh, as kind of intercessors to offer gifts or for sacrifices, but verse 2, really important points, says, who can have compassion? It's, it's, it has to be somebody who understands. What we're going to see is that the, the writer of the Hebrews here makes the point that this is exactly what the priests of Israel did, and guess what? It's exactly what Jesus did. We've already seen the writer make the point that Jesus is better than angels. That Jesus is better than the law. That Jesus is better than Moses. And now we're going to see that Jesus is better than the priests of Israel, better than the high priest and this priestly system that had been established. And we're going to see all of these things really speaking of Jesus. But one of the requirements was that the priest would have compassion on the people. You know, so often there's this kind of almost mindset that, that, that priests, ministers, pastors, whatever, almost act in a kind of position of, of judgment over their flock, over their congregation. And, and typically we, we see it very much within a Catholic model where they have confessions and things. That you come and you confess your sins to the priest and, you know, the, the priest is seen to be somebody who is almost sinless and wonderful and perfect. Of course we know from the world and, and just our newspapers, that's clearly not the case. But that's the kind of mental concept that's painted. Uh, and that the, these poor people, the congregation, come and they come and confess their sins to the priest. Well, of course, that's not the biblical model at all. The idea of a, a priest is that someone who has compassion. I was listening to John Corson, and he was uh, just using an example. He was saying, you know, really, the idea of a priest, a pastor, minister, whatever title again, you know, is somebody that is in hospital when you arrive in hospital and they're in hospital being treated and they've been there for many years and they just happen to know the way around the hospital they know who to go and speak to they know the doctors they know the nurses they know which rooms you need to go through to for what things and when you get in hospital for whatever ailment condition you have your priest your minister your pastor is somebody who's there who just is in the same kind of predicament as you are but can help you and point you in the right direction I quite like that analogy. I think it's good. Again, that idea that the high priest here is, is someone who can have compassion. And notice on the ignorant, those who have not had opportunity to learn, particularly for, for new believers in, in our context today. You know, for people that are growing in their faith. But it says, and on them that are out of the way. Well, it's, it's a great phrase because, you know, scripturally, uh, this is again, uh, just, 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 Forgive me for this, but this is why I love the King James. I love the way things are translated because there's a real consistency 
in the terms and things that he uses. Because we're told that blessed are the undefiled in the way. We're told that the church was originally called the way before they were called Christians. And this is just another one of those little subtle things where you see the idea coming through. And he's able to have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way. Those that have steered off of the path they should be on. Maybe through, again, that great phrase in the Anglican liturgy, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. Those are the ways often we, we end up stumbling and we can get out of the way. Well, the idea of a, a priest in this context is somebody that can steer people back onto the right path. You know, and it, it's a real blessing when you have somebody, and maybe I don't do this enough with, with you here, but maybe I should do more, that would say to you, how's your walk with the Lord? That actually challenges you. I, I've said before that Pastor Tony, who came and spoke to us, uh, has now gone back to America. You know, when I, when I used to meet him uh, on occasions in London, we used to go for lunch together. You know, he would often ask me, he said, how's your walk with the Lord? Are you keeping yourself pure? You know, and it wasn't asked out of a kind of a judgmental kind of way. You know, it was just that kind of genuine compassion and concern. But you know what? Because I kind of got to expect him to ask those questions, you also start to think about the way you are living. If you know somebody's going to ask you that, it makes you think twice about the way you are living and the things that you maybe would end up falling into or doing. You know, it's what we're told in Proverbs 29, when there's no vision, people cast off restraint. My paraphrase of that is, when there's nothing to aim at, when there's nothing to keep you focused, you get sloppy. And it's so true in our lives, isn't it? If you don't have something, I mean, I guess you just imagine when you are not in your daily routine. So you take times maybe at Christmas or when you're off work or whatever the situation. You know, when you're out of routine, sometimes it's really hard to get things done. You become lazy sometimes. Sometimes when you're in routine and you're doing things, you can get everything accomplished, you can get everything achieved. It's been said many times, if you want something done, ask a busy person. You know, but the reason for that is because there's a focus, there's a discipline. Well, that's again, we need that in our lives. We need people that are going to ask us, and we should encourage each other as well. We should be asking each other how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. Are we staying close to the Lord? Are we still reading his word as we should? Are we still trying to pray daily? You know, tough questions because, you know, I guarantee you if we went around this this morning and added up how many hours we've spent as a church this week in prayer, it's not enough. I can tell you that now without even doing the numbers, it's not enough. If I said how much time have we spent individually reading his word this week, it's not enough. If I spent, if I asked the question how much time have we spent watching telly this week, even things like the news, which we have to watch to know what's going on in the world, you know, and we can justify whatever. You know, we've probably spent plenty of time doing things like that. We've spent plenty of time doing other things. But when it comes to things of God, do we really spend the time doing what we should be doing and, and loving him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength? We'll, we'll come to this in, in a while, in a few verses' time. So again, this idea of compassion so important. So to have compassion on the ignorant, on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also to be compassed uh, with infirmity. You know, so the, the high priest isn't somebody that's super special, super spiritual. He's somebody that struggles and, and has challenges and problems, just like the rest for, in, in Israel, just like the rest of the, the congregation, the rest of the children of Israel. In a church environment, a pastor's not any more righteous or holy or super special. You know, I struggle with all sorts of things still. And I need your prayers 
And that's why we need to, to help each other. But this is why the Lord ordains this system. It's so that you go to a, a priest. I, I just, let me just interrupt myself. I love the model we have in scripture with King David. David is such a wonderful character. Why do I love David? Well, I love David because he was a liar, he was a blasphemer, he was an adulterer, he, he, he was a murderer. I mean, every sin in the book, he broke it. Well, he committed it, he broke the, the God's laws in every respect. But you know what? He was a man after God's own heart. And that gives me great comfort because, you know, when I look at his life and I see the areas that he failed, and I look at my life and I see the areas that I failed, but I see something so special in David, and that is that he had a love for God that was so much greater than anything else. And yes, he stumbled, but he never really stumbled in a sense of wanting to rebel against God. He just had this love for God. And, and yeah, we, we live in these earthly tents. We have desires, we have temptations, we have challenges that we face. Sometimes we even put ourselves in a position that we've been talking about over the last few weeks where we even don't trust God and we doubt God. But, you know, David's a great example of somebody who was fallible, but just God was number one in his life. And that's the idea, in a sense, of a priest, that they're not perfect, but God should be number one. And I hope for, for you the, the encouragement I can give you. I want to be a, a godly example, not in getting everything right. I don't do that at all. But I want to keep stirring your hearts. Every week we meet together, every time we Bible study, or when we, we, we spend time fellowshipping, I just want to encourage you to love God more, to read his word more. So again, high priest, just like the rest of the congregation, he's also compassed with infirmity. In verse 3, by reason hereof, he might, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sin. So when he's offering these sacrifices in, for Israel, they were offering not only for the sins of the people, it wasn't that they were okay, they were offering sins, uh, offering for their own sins as well. And in verse 4, as we said a moment ago, no one takes, that's that word again, uh, is to, to take any personal thing in order to use it. So nobody takes this honor unto himself. This is something that in this context for a high priest is somebody who's called of God. I do find it interesting, and I've been asked at various times, not often I have to say, but at times, people have found out that I'm a pastor of church, and that question of ordination comes up. Are you ordained? Yes, I am ordained. I'm ordained by God. You know, any piece of paper that I may or may not have been given by man, I have got various certificates and bits and pieces that I've been given, they're irrelevant. They don't mean nothing. You know, to have a man ordain another man, or in this day and age it could be a man ordained a woman or whatever context you can think of, uh, permutation of those things. But, you know, it means nothing because this, this role is something that is ordained by God. I don't need another man to say he thinks I'm suitable for a, a particular role, position or task, spiritually. That's got to come from God. Ordination in terms of the world is the world's mind of these things. It's ridiculous. I mean, there was that big question, you know, what do you think about the ordination of women? Well, God is the one who ordains. It's not down to man to ordain in the first place. It's kind of a mute question. God is the one who ordains for ministry. And again, as it says, no man takes his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So Aaron, of course, was put in this position and just like Moses, in a sense, you remember when Moses gets this calling to go to the children of Israel to bring them out of Egypt? And what does he say? 
Well, I can't do that, Lord. I'm not the wrong person. There must be another Moses you're thinking of. And God says, no, no, you're, you're the right person. You're the one that I've, I've called to do this. Moses still protests because he gets quite cross with him. And eventually God says, okay, well, I'm going to let Aaron be your mouthpiece. Of course, God could have easily and would have no doubt given Moses the, the ability to speak clearly. But nevertheless, God again understands our, our frailties, our weaknesses, and again we see that grace. He allows Aaron to, to be the mouthpiece of Moses. And Aaron's called, and eventually of course Aaron's called to be the high priest. And when we're called in these kind of contexts, we're not thinking, this is, is this something I deserve? You know, thanks God, I've been waiting for the call. <laughs> you know, I wonder when it was going to come. That's not how it works, is it? You know, when God calls us, normally it's a situation like Moses, and we think, I'm not ready for this. I don't deserve it. You know, in fact, very often we go through that, that period like Moses did, where initially, you remember, he wanted to be a deliverer. He ends up killing an Egyptian. He ends up trying to intervene and to set the people free. And of course, he'd been educated and trained in the universities of Egypt. He'd been effectively the, the son of the king. He was being lined up to be a pharaoh, to be the next ruler of the land. In one sense, from a natural perspective, of course he deserved this. He was right. But when it comes to it, he's had 40 years to unlearn everything he'd learned. And he gets to the point of understanding his own weakness and lack of ability to really step out and do this. I'm reading a um, biography at the moment of Keith Green, who's a Christian singer-songwriter. Um, just an incredible man. He died, I think it was 28 when he died in a plane crash with two of his children. Um, but by that point, he'd already just done so much in serving the Lord and everything else. But he started this as a musician. He wasn't a Christian, um, and he was trying to make his way in the world, wanted to have a career in music, uh, make his money that way, make his livelihood. He meets his wife, Melody, and the, the song we sang this morning, There is a Redeemer, is actually a song by, by Melody, by his wife, and Keith recorded and sang it as well. Um, and they go through this this kind of journey together looking for every possible solution to this why are we here question uh, trying all sorts of things eventually they came to the Lord um, and they, they were just so surprised at so many Christians who weren't living a godly life who weren't living as they understood from scripture we should be living but Keith got to the point of laying down his music it was so special to him. It's kind of all he'd known. And he got to the point of saying, well, Lord, you know, I'm here to serve you. Maybe music's not the right thing. So he actually got to the point of saying to, to Melody, his wife, you know, I, I'm just going to stop playing. You know, if it's, if it's of the Lord, then okay. But I don't think this is, this is where the Lord would have me now. And for, for quite a period of time, he laid it down. He didn't play. Until he kind of, again, just came to the end of himself, the end of his natural resources and abilities. And then he got an opportunity to go and play at a Christian event. Somebody asked him, and he really prayed about it. And he thought, well, okay, well, this is for you, God. This isn't for, for money. This isn't for the secular world. This isn't, you know, for entertainment. This is for you. So he agreed to go and do it. And as he was playing that night, he just felt a real sense of God's presence. And the Lord really touched him and blessed him. And the whole meeting was, was just so, so just blown away as the Spirit of God moved through him. And he realized that God was giving him this opportunity, this gift back. It's the kind of idea that I'm trying to communicate here. You know, those who enter into ministry, you don't do so because you're, you're fully equipped and you're ready. You get to the point that you're empty of yourself. 
And then God says, now, okay, I can use you. You know, it's true of the Christian life. You know, if we're to be used of God as individuals in any way, shape, or form, we have to come to the end of our own reliance on our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own talents, our own skill set, and come to that place where we go, you know what, Lord, I have nothing. I just come as I am. And the Lord goes, great, okay, now I can do something. Again, the Lord is just looking for those broken vessels to shine through. Remember the situation with Gideon and those men, those 300 that, that were willing to step out in faith. Again, the light, they break these jars with the lamps inside, and as they break them, the light shines through the broken vessels. That's how God works. Light shining through broken vessels, and he wants us to be those broken vessels. And so we then get on to the comparison, verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. In other words, Christ didn't choose or just step onto the scene saying, right, this is my right, this is my role. But he says, but he that said unto him, speaking of God, speaking to Jesus, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's a quote from Psalm 40, where God would make this declaration that Jesus was going to enter into the priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood, not falling on from, from Aaron. Again, the Levitical priesthood was not the line that Jesus becomes a high priest of. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And so we're told that actually the priesthood that, that Jesus is high priest of is the this line of, uh, of of priests after the order of Melchizedek, and we'll talk about him in just a moment. It says, "Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong cries, uh, sorry, strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared." Speaking of Jesus here, in the the temptations, the challenges, and particularly Gethsemane. You know, Gethsemane, Jesus, we're told, sweats drops of blood. Is that hematidosis is the, the medical condition where under certain situations, under extreme anguish, anguish and stress, you can get to a place where literally you sweat blood. And Jesus was there. Not because he didn't want to go through with the whole dying to save us thing. Of course, that was the reason he'd come. He'd come to do the will of his father. Jesus had loved his own. But it was the thought of the sins of the world being placed upon him. It wasn't just what the Romans were going to do to him. Of course, there was no doubt of some apprehension of that, but that's not the real issue. A lot of people seem to think that, you know, it was what the, the Romans did and the Jews did, and the, the beatings and the, the um, shredding his back with whips and all those kind of things. I mean, yeah, horrible from a human perspective, but Jesus' concerns, and, and the reason we have that he offered up prayers and supplications. Remember three times in the garden, Jesus cries out, Father, if there be any other way, lick this cup, pass from me. What cup is he talking about? It's a cup that we see through Scripture. It's the cup of the wrath of God. That is the cup that he refers to. Because he recognized that entering into our place as a high priest to intercede on our behalf, he was taking upon himself our sin. That Jesus was going to experience the wrath from God for everything that we have ever said and done and thought that is contrary to God's will and God's plan and God's purpose and from God's righteous standard. So this is why Jesus cried this strong cry and tears. 
And he cries unto him that was able to save him from death. Of course God could have intervened, could, could have stopped it happening, but it would have meant that, as Oswald Chambers puts it, that Jesus would have gone to heaven alone. There'd have been no family, there'd have been no house of redeemed saints. Because none of us would have been able to follow. So again, he cried unto him that was able to save him from death, and he was hurt in that he feared. And it says, though, verse 8, he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Oswald Chambers again says that God's plan for, for man, starting with Adam, was that man would turn innocence into obedience by a series of moral choices, that we would choose to do what's right. Of course, Adam failed. But Jesus comes and throughout his life does exactly what God called him to do. He was completely obedient to his father's will, including being obedient to go to the cross. And then verse 9, and being made perfect. I mean, of course, Jesus is perfect. The idea here, though, is complete. He completed the work. What a great statement in that sense, that, that Jesus has completed the work. There's nothing else that you have to do. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. And it says here, I love this verse, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. People ask the question, can you lose your salvation? No. And here you have one scripture that proves it. Because it is eternal salvation. If it is eternal, you cannot lose it. It can't be eternal if there's a risk that it doesn't go on forever. It can't be eternal if it could be somehow lost. Eternal means forever. That once we are saved, we are saved. Why? Because he completed it. He did everything. Everything that was required for you to be saved, Jesus accomplished. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. Now, in the context of what we've already been looking at, this idea of obedience is exactly the same idea uh, that we saw uh, in the in chapter three, and it's kind of the idea of uh, again obeying there, um, and it speaks about Israel uh, not obeying and so on. It was because they didn't trust; they didn't trust God, and the the concept here, the idea here for us who are to be saved is simply that we trust Him. That, that's what the obedience is about. It's not about following a set of commandments or rules or obligations. It's simply trusting him. So unto all those that trust Jesus, that believe him for their salvation, they have that assurance of salvation. It's incredible. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to sign any forms. You just have to believe him. And of course, with that, naturally will come repentance Naturally will come that working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us, to change us by the renewing of our minds. Naturally there will come that conviction of sin. But those things accompany salvation. Salvation is very simple. It's when you understand what Jesus Christ did, you simply believe him, that he has paid the price for your sin. And by trusting him, by receiving what he's done, by understanding that that is yours as a gift, 
You are promised eternal salvation. What a great statement that is. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them, uh, unto all them that obey him, called of God, a high priest, and again, after the order of Melchizedek. So again, this reference to this character that we meet back in Genesis. We'll talk about him in just a moment. It says, of whom we have many things to say. Now, Paul, I believe, writing this is saying, look, you know, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek. I want to tell you about this character. But, you know, he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. In other words, but it's, really hard to tell you this stuff because you're dull of hearing. I'm not sure how Paul would have got, in, got on in today's church because that's not the kind of sermon that we, we like to hear, is it? Somebody's coming to your congregation and going, you know what, I really want to talk to you about some of the great things of God, but I can't because you're thick. You don't get it. But that's really what, what the writer is saying. You know, I want to talk to you about this stuff, but you don't get it. And it goes on just to bring to the end of this chapter. For when the time you ought to be teachers, by now you should yourself be teaching other people. You've been saved. You've understood what God has done. You understand the gospel. You should be going out and telling other people about this. You should understand that Jesus is better than angels and better than the law and better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the high priests, better than Aaron. You should be telling other people about this stuff. But he says, but you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Those, that phrase, the first principles, the foundations, basically. It's a phrase that Paul uses a number of times in other letters, particularly in Galatians we see it. Which is interesting because we've said already there's this link between Galatians and Hebrews and so on. So again, another one of these kind of little telltale signs that this is Paul writing this because again, the idea that, that, that we're being told that they should understand, but they don't, they haven't mastered even the basics, the foundational things of the oracles of God. And it says, and I've become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. You see, you're like babies. You know, how big would a baby grow if they never progressed to solid food? If they never got past just the, the milk? Turn with me, if you will, to First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Just a few pages further on. After Hebrews, you've got James, then you've got Peter. First Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Peter says there, and now Peter's writing to, to Jewish believers, uh, again, Jewish Christians, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He's saying we should grow. That the word is like milk to us, and it's a good thing, but we should grow. But now turn with me to First Corinthians. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians, again, really hammers this. And he says to the Corinthian Christians, these Gentile Christians in Corinth, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. Very much like he's saying now to, to the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews. Now, I wanted to speak to you about spiritual things, but I had to speak to you as carnal. Even as unto babes in Christ. He said, I fed you with milk and not meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. 
For you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envy and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? And he goes on from that point. You know, he's saying, yeah, we should, we should grow up as Christians. We should get serious about our faith. We should understand God's word. We should be rooted in scripture so that we're able to teach others. But Paul in Corinthians, and we see here, again, that challenge that we should grow. Verse 13 says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. It requires effort. It's not something that just happens. You can't just grow without eating, without chewing. I mean, sometimes a bit of meat takes a bit of chewing to to, to get it down. But, of course, milk's so much easier, isn't it, to swallow? It takes effort. Have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, you probably can tell I'm not a big one for exercise, not in the physical sense. But spiritual exercise is so important. And we need to be growing. And a great question to ask yourself is, you look back a year ago, have you grown spiritually from where you were a year ago? Or are you kind of in the same place? Is your spiritual life stronger than it was a year ago? Do you find yourself... Walking in the way, undefiled, as we're told in Psalm 119. Are we walking in the blessings that the Lord has for us? Are we trusting God more with situations and circumstances? Do we find that our natural response in an emergency is panic? Or is our initial response, well, I wonder what the Lord's going to do here. I wonder how the Lord's going to use this situation for his glory. Because we're told that all things work together for good for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Do we believe it? If we didn't believe it a year ago, do we believe it now? You know, this is the challenge you've seen in the last few chapters. Well, because I hope, I pray, I believe that you are growing in the word and you're growing in spiritual things. I want to tell you a little bit about Melchizedek. Because this is what we're not given and we're not told specifically here. What we are told, and it's such a tantalizing thing, is that the writer saying, look, I really want to talk to you about Melchizedek. Why? Because it speaks of Jesus. But you're not ready yet. Well, allow me to fill in a blank which I think would have been here had that opportunity been given. I'll read to you from Bill Cooper's book, The Authenticity of the Book of Genesis. It's quoting from Genesis 14, 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's the same as Jerusalem, Brought forth bread and wine. This is Moses, uh, sorry, Abraham. There's this battle with these, these kings, five kings against four kings. Remember, Lot's taken captive. Abraham and his 318 trained servants go off after. They bring the Lot and the family back and they rescue these nations. Uh, and the king of Sodom, symbolic of the devil in a sense, tries to, to get the souls of the people and tries to, to bargain with, with, uh, with Abraham, but Melchizedek comes out and offers bread and wine, so symbolic and significant. Um, but it says here um, that it was the king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. I'm just going to read to you from Bill Cooper's book. He says this: uh, Thus is Melchizedek first introduced to the reader in the book of Genesis. But hitherto, Melchizedek had been a mysterious figure. For what conservative Bible scholars? Sorry, for all conservative Bible scholars as much as for liberal. Just who or what was he? 
For the liberal, he's a myth, a fanciful made-up character who is merely there as a literary prop for the rest of Genesis 14, the Genesis 14 fable. For the conservative, he is rightly held first and foremost as a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing the same titles as he, the king of righteousness, which is what Melchizedek means in Hebrew, and the prince of peace, or king of Salem. Those, what those, that's what those names mean. Like our Lord, he was the priest also of the most high God. In Hebrew, that's El Elyon, as well as king. But whether he was also a historic, historically a flesh and blood king of Salem, even conservative scholars can't agree. Some saying he was, and some saying he wasn't. How then shall we solve this riddle? Well, like all historical riddles, we turn to the written record, if there is one, and happily we have such a record. Not just inside the Bible, but from outside the Bible, which compels the view that Melchizedek was indeed a flesh and blood historical priest and king of Jerusalem. Not that he himself has left us any such record, uh, not one that we've been told about at any rate, but one of his successors certainly has, and it makes very interesting reading. As we look at what this historical record says of the priesthood and kingship of Salem, we must bear in mind that the historical record takes nothing away from what the scriptures say of Melchizedek when it speaks of his being a type and shadow of Christ. On the contrary, it illuminates it. But so closely is Melchizedek's priestly and kingly office spoken of in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ in Paul's letter to the Hebrews that many have come to assume that Melchizedek and Jesus are one and the same. Okay, some people have assumed that Jesus and Melchizedek are the same person, but it's just a different title. He says, this is because Melchizedek is spoken of as having neither father nor mother, nor even beginning or end of his life. But scripture is very clear on this. Firstly, Hebrews 5, 6 and 7, which we've just read a moment ago, speaks very plainly of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh. Well, this is saying nothing less than that the days of his flesh are in the past. In other words, his earthly life is over. It is his priesthood that is eternal and not his body. Secondly, it says both in Psalms 110 verse 4 and Hebrews 5, 6 of Jesus that he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For they, uh, so if they were one and the same person, then surely scripture would simply say uh, to Jesus, thou art Melchizedek, instead of saying that he is of the order of Melchizedek. That is important to understand clearly. But, that being said, what does the extra-biblical record have to tell us? The record that interests us here is a series of letters to the Egyptian pharaoh, Amenophis IV, preserved amongst the Tel al Armina tablets. The letters discovered in 1887 are from the hand of another priest-king of Salem, who came sometime after Melchizedek, a man named Etob Tob, sorry, Ebed Tob. The names are preserved on cuneiform tablets among much diplomatic and other correspondence, and they have a very interesting story to tell. Generally, the letters are a complaint from Ebed-Top to Pharaoh of incursions made by a confederacy of tribes near to Jerusalem, appealing for immediate help from the Egyptian king, who has already sent his commissioner to Ebed-Top to see events for himself. Interestingly, this confederacy is called the Hebri, uh, which uh, a word from which the town Hebron in Israel gets its name, and which still means confederacy. Thus, the repercussions of these events, incursions, are seen and felt today after nearly four thousand years. Through Hebron, sorry, though Hebron was known to Abraham as a place, and was certainly a confederacy in his day, the modern town of Hebron 
as a political entity was actually born of the events that Ebed Tob complains about. Ebed Tob, however, provides us in these letters with some fascinating insights regarding his kingly, sorry, his priestly and kingly office, bearing in mind the words of Hebrews 7.3, which we'll get to in a couple of, couple of weeks' time, Lord willing, when it speaks of Melchizedek as being without father and without mother. Ebed Top, a successor to Melchizedek in his office of priest king of Salem, reminds the Pharaoh how he came to hold such an office. This is quoting from these, these ancient tablets they found. Behold, neither my father nor my mother have exalted me in this place. He repeats and expands upon this reminder later in his correspondence. Behold, this country of the city of Jerusalem, neither my father nor my mother has given me. The arm of the mighty king gave it to me, even to me. Those quotes from these historical records that we found. It says, this is of immense interest and significance because it helps us to understand historically the very nature of Melchizedek's combined office of priest and king of Salem. It was, in short, a non-hereditary office. The historical priest king of Salem was put into office either by lot or by election. It was not an office that was handed down from father to son. So, of course, with Aaron's Levitical priesthood, it was... Uh, uh, the father would then, the son would then become the next priest and so on, all the way down. And they're saying that Melchizedek was not like that. And he says, this has a vital bearing on the purity and sanctity of the priesthood of Salem, of, of which Melchizedek was a member. The priestly lines of both Aaron and Levi were hereditary. And sometimes unfortunate effects of that was that often young men inherited the office who were entirely unsuited to it. The priest Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are a first-class example of this, of what can happen under such automatic elevation to priesthood. Ananias and Caiaphas are other later examples. But the important point is that, uh, is that here such tragedies were averted by a non-hereditary priesthood. It is likely, given the choices of lot or election, that the priest kings of Salem were chosen by lot rather than by election, and we may think that likely for this reason. When John in the first chapter of his gospel speaks of believers being given power to become the very sons of God, he says that such were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, or inheritance, nor of the will of man, human election, but of God, who often made his own choices known through the casting of lots, the Urim and the Thurim, uh, again we have in uh, the Torah. That's a quote from verse John. Uh, sorry, John 1, 12 to 13. It says, hereditary titles um, hold obvious dangers and the voting majority, it has been observed, do not always bring the best, uh, bring in the best governments. Casting the lot, however, places the matter entirely in the hands and the will of God. Thus, it seems that Melchizedek and his predecessors and successors chosen, sorry, thus it seems was Melchizedek and all his predecessors and successors chosen for office. So what he's saying, let me just clarify in case you're not following the thread, that we have these historical records that show that there was this line of kings and priests in Jerusalem but it wasn't a hereditary priesthood. It wasn't something that because your dad did it, you get to do it. It was something that individuals were chosen and seemingly chosen directly by God for this role. And he carries on and says this, that there was something especially peculiar about the man Melchizedek and his calling with regard to his priestly office is seen when we compare his name with that of Ebed Tob. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, where Ebed Tob means simply good servant. Both names, of course, foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as Messiah. Because though he was king of all, he made himself servant of all. 
And he most certainly was the good servant. So it would appear that both the priesthood and kingships of Salem were a living and decidedly historical foreshadowing of him who was to come, the promised seed of the woman. It is interesting at this point, however, that we need to clear up some serious misunderstanding. And it's something that we've been given modernists and critics of Field Day, uh, and have even confused uh, various scholars, and he goes on to speak about them. Uh, and the idea that he then goes on to talk about here, and again, if you want to get the book, it's a really good read. There's so much in this. He goes on to talk about the fact that people have suggested that Melchizedek didn't worship God, that he was a pagan, uh, or worshipped uh, pagan uh, deities and so on. Um, and he goes on and says, Now, as elsewhere in the ancient world, the Most High God was indeed known of in Canaan, for they included him as head of their uh, pantheon under the biblical title El Elyon. So ancient cultures knew of the God of the Bible, and they ascribed some sort of respect to him. He says, But they're acknowledging him and his supremacy in that way cannot reduce him to the level of the many false gods that were worshipped. And he says, Would Abraham have uh, even thought of paying tithes to a pagan priest? That is hardly likely. And where Melchizedek and Abraham were, uh, was commanded by God to sacrifice his sons, sorry, uh, and where was Melchizedek when Abraham commanded, uh, was commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac? See, that was a typical pagan thing. Um, and he's making the point that there's no uh, pagan influence in anything we see or know about Melchizedek or this priesthood. Now, I would love to go on and read the rest of this to you. I'm not going to do so. The conclusion we get when we go through, we look at this historical record and everything else, uh, is the understanding that for a thousand years there was a line of kings and priests ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. That every one of those priests, their name, their title, their position, gave glory to God. It spoke of Jesus. It spoke of the one who was to come. And that, I think, is utterly staggering when we know that we are coming up to a time when the Prince of Peace, when Jesus will return as the King of Jerusalem. And he will rule and reign over Jerusalem for another period of a thousand years. And you see how all of these things, and there's far more here that's really exciting as you read it, it just brings me out in goosebumps, you see see how God has engineered these things. They all spoke of the one who was to come. And so, unfortunately... The writer to the Hebrews, again, I believe Paul, but doesn't have the opportunity to tell these Christians this because they were dull of hearing. Why? Well, because they'd have rather do something else with their time than study and to learn and to grow. And I hope and pray this morning for us, even those little things, just encourage you to maybe read a bit more, to pray a bit more, to spend more time with the Lord growing. That There is so many wonderful things that we have in God's Word that as you read and as you're diligent in your study, you get to understand and see. These wonderful gems and these jewels and so on. These things that we can link together. Chuck Minister used to, in his own personal devotion, have seven portions of scripture that he was reading through simultaneously. So typically something from the Torah, something from the historical books, something from um, the, the poetical books, uh, then something from the prophets, something from um, the gospels, then something from the rest of the New Testament. And so just every day he'd be reading a little bit from those sections. And in doing so, he'd start to see links everywhere. And this is one of the reasons that God blessed Chuck Minister with so many insights that, that tie so many things together. Because he's reading different things and seeing the same thread coming through. Again, unfortunately the, the Hebrews that Paul was writing to here missed out on, on some of these wonderful facts, wonderful truths that they could have otherwise been been 
uh, or could have been revealed to them. Uh, you can say, well, does it make a difference? Well, yeah, if you love the Lord, it does. Because you know, we, we, we should be being stirred by these things. The things of God should excite us. We're going to go in next week, in chapter 6, Lord willing. And it starts off again just saying, come on, we've got to move on from where we are. We've got to get the basics of our faith nailed down. We need to understand so that we can go on to perfection. What does that mean? It means that we can get to that place where we really are focusing and living our lives on Jesus. That we understand doctrine, we've got those things sorted, that we can start growing as Christians and becoming more like Jesus. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. We thank you that because of that, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we can obtain help in a time of need as we saw last week. And Lord, as this week, that reminder that you're a compassionate high priest, that you ever lived to make intercession for us, and that you call us to to do likewise for each other, to pray for each other, to uplift each other, to edify and encourage each other. Father, thank you too that you have such a hold and a control on history, that just as there will be a king and priest who will rule and reign over Jerusalem for a thousand years, so there already has been a model laid down. When all of those kings and priests of Jerusalem all spoke of you, Jesus, who were to come. Oh, Lord, stir our hearts, we pray. Lord, if we're hardened in our hearts, if the things of your word don't excite us, then, Lord, change our hearts. Lord, give us such a love for your word that supersedes anything that this world can give us. Lord, thank you for this time. May we continue to grow in knowledge and, most importantly, in your grace. And then, Lord, live lives of worship responding to that grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.